If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, hello there and welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. My name is Keith Giles. I am the author of Jesus Unexpected, Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming. And I am uh, joined by my co-host on this amazing podcast episode, uh, which I'll allow them to introduce themselves in a second. But I first am under contractual obligation to mention to you that this is the first episode in a brand new series uh, about clobber passages. It's clobbering time! Woo-hoo! That's right. It sure is, Derek. It's clobbering time. We're going to be looking at clobber passages in the Bible. Uh, the first, uh, This series is going to be great. I'm looking forward to it a lot. And um, so um, I would like my co-host to introduce themselves here and let themselves uh, be known. So stand and be counted. My name is Katie Valentine, and I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control. And if you felt like you have been clobbered in a church too much, I do want to let everyone know that in just a few days and less than a week on January 12th, I am running a course with a colleague on finding your ideal church and finding a church where you don't have to experience that clobbering. The only thing you'll be clobbered by is love and a warm community and good casseroles at a church potluck. So if that's something you're interested in, we'll put all the notes in the show notes and I uh, would love to see you there. Woo-hoo! And I'm Derek Day. I'm the author of Deconstructing Religion. And if you want a good resource that will get the fucking bully of religion off your back, I encourage you to go out to Amazon and order my book, Deconstructing Religion. And I'm also the host and the founder of the Forward Podcast, Shameless Plug. Shameless Plug, indeed. And uh, I'm Matt DiStefano, and I got a shameless plug. Um, well, it's not anything that I've got out now, but I've just decided, thanks to um, the inspiring quotes that I get on Pathios, to write a, um, a follow-up to Heretics. So this one's going to be called Apostate, and Choir has, <laughs> for some reason, Choir is deciding to publish this book as well. So excited to announce that for you all today. I don't have a release date, obviously, but uh, it is in the works. So excited to do that and excited for another episode of this uh, show. So wait a second. Is, if it's a shameless plug, would it happen to be an anal plug by chance? Well, <laughs> if that's your thing, I'm all for it. I'm just, I'm leading up to something here. Sex positive all the way here. We are, yeah, we are all sex positive. Absolutely. Are you, so you're leading up to something that wouldn't have to do with the uh, hotline, would it? It would indeed. And there is a hotline if you, the listener, would like to get in touch with the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Exercise finger dexterity and call 240-343-7379. Once again, it's 240-343-7379. And we're going to roll that beautiful text footage. As I alluded to, this was to our friend and brother, Matthew Stefano. And you can just feel the love in this post. So, the skinny, effeminate nerd doesn't like Christians. The runaway nerd will miss you like a kidney stone. If you're a Christian, then Satan is a Christian. The only thing you ever worship is your own wide, dirty, diseased asshole. I told you I was ready for this one. I was I was born for this moment. Derek, I um props props because I tried to read that to my wife and it took me at least five minutes to get through the last <laughs> sentence. I was laughing so hard. Matt, what did you inside. write 
to get this comment. I well, I wrote something LGBTQ uh, positive and affirmative, and um, I uh, on Pathos where I I forgot how uh, troll worthy that site is, and I and and I love the fact that I'm back on there. I just forgot that these people exist <laughs> who say shit like this. You get the best troll, man. You really do. I I'm I'm kind of jealous because I mean I get some trolls, but you somehow inspire these people they're so creative i mean that right there is that was a work of art listen there's some symmetry in this post that you know i can appreciate on a sentence structure level and the the more the the more the more i've read it sorry derek but the more i've read it the more pulitzer worthy it is i mean it's brilliantly written it is and 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 not only that i think that is absolutely in keeping with something that might have been penned by our pal Saul of Tarsus. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I, I don't know about that. I've, pre, I've, pre, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe pre-conversion. Yeah, that's what. That's why I said Saul of Tarsus yeah. and not not Paul. Okay, sure. Come on. Well, I know, I, I know. I don't Sorry, like, I don't like Paul, but I, I'm going to give Paul a I'm going to give Paul a hall pass today. Yeah. Well, I don't like this guy, so let's move on to the next text. Okay. All right. <laughs> so here we go with our next text message to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and it reads. Hi there. Looked at the podcast list. Didn't see one about other faiths. So here's the question. What happens to Buddhists, Hindus, American Indians, Taoists, Mormons, etc.? Any one of other faiths that doesn't involve Jesus or the Trinity? I cannot imagine or fathom that these people are going downstairs. Air quotes. Second question. You know the drill. If someone atheist or someone who didn't want anything to do with God or heaven, why would God permit them to go to heaven for eternity since they don't want anything to do with God while they were alive. Thank you for reading and thank you for answering these questions. And it's signed with love by Matt Agajanian. Well, I know I can take the first uh, question there because um, I think it's pretty obvious that anyone who's Buddhist or Hindu, American Indian, Taoist, Mormon, etc., anyone of another faith, uh, that doesn't believe in Jesus or the Trinity, um, they're going straight to hell and they're going to burn for eternity. And uh, I hope that's clear. I, I, I hope I've made that really clear. Um, no, look, you left a comment on Matt's blog, didn't you? <laughs> that was no, you, listen, wasn't it? If you, listen, if you listen to this podcast, you know for a fact, uh, what, well, you should anyway, uh, how I think the four of us would respond to that uh, question. But no, we, we all believe, I think, that it doesn't really matter what particular religious club you belong to, um, that God does love everyone, that he's not really concerned about whether you are a Buddhist or a Hindu or none of the above. I'm going to see your heresy and raise you one, Keith, because people say, Derek, do all roads lead to God? And I used to say, well, no, it doesn't. And I kind of tiptoe around that. But now I say, oh, yeah. Every road does lead to God. And here's the thing. Jesus, if you if you do a little bit of wordplay, because again, translations are inaccurate, right? But it where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes unto me, but or no comes unto the Father, but by me, right? Imagine if he said, I am is the way. If I am is the way, then self-realization and self-actualization self-actualization is the key to entering into the kingdom. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, you're digging deep. I am. You're digging deep. I am. I'm going. I'm going all wanna, in. I'm. I'm going full heretic here. Full heretic. <laughs> I want to even kind of parse um, a, a few things. It's, it, it's a great text. Thank you, Matt. 
Uh, I want to kind of address that any one of other faiths that doesn't involve Jesus or the Trinity, not every Christian is Trinitarian. So we even have more, right. like, you know, more diversity in my particular tradition. We have both Trinitarians and Unitarians in a broad sense. And I know a lot of Christians actually who aren't Trinitarian. Um, I think we're all on our way to heaven or whatever is beyond and then coming back to earth for another time around. But in the second part of your question, you know, why would God permit them to go to heaven if they don't want anything to do with God when they were alive? This is where I really trust God. And I'm going to be kind of old fashioned here to perfect us, because I think I'm pretty sure my idea of heaven is really incorrect and that I have a lot of gaps. So I hope that I'm in for some good surprises mm -hmm. when I get there and that there's some twists and turns that I'm totally not expecting. Um, and that God is like, you couldn't have even envisioned what's going to be in store. You know what? I, I think, and so I think the same is true for all walks of religion. I think that even God is, would say, you know, I wouldn't want anything to do with that God either. You know, when you have this, I mean, right. you know, why would, why would God, God would say, well, shit, I wouldn't want to be around that God either. <laughs> yeah. So, so great question, Matt. Um, Regarding the very first part of your text, uh, you didn't see one about other faiths. We do actually have an episode. If you want to go way back in the time machine and head back to episode five, it was called, help me if I forget it, it was called Discovering Christ in Non-Christian Things. Is that correct? Close enough. Close enough. Close enough. So yeah, episode five, if you check that out, I have no idea what we talked about. It's been a couple of years. And as we go on this journey, we change and we ebb and flow. But I know it was a good episode. Um, so go listen to that and see if any of it resonates with you. And I know that we're going to have some Mormons who are listening to this who are going to say we are Christians. And so I want to acknowledge that right now. Um, every every Mormon friend and colleague that I know professes Jesus uh, as Christians. And so that would be a fun conversation to have at some point in time. Absolutely. Well, yeah, well, we should do that. We've never done one, I think, yeah. on like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, things like that would be. Yeah. Put that on the list. Yeah, we we oh, yes. yeah yeah we can do that for sure. Um, Would Mormons be the heretics, or are we the heretics to Mormons? I don't. Her know. Heresy is in the eye of the beholder. To plug to that shamelessly plug yeah. another one of our episodes. Heresy is a continuum, yes. folks. It has no beginning. It has <laughs> the, no the spectrum of heresy. We all we all land at different spots on the heresy spectrum. Oh, I love it. Exactly. Well, Matt, thank you so much for the question. Uh, I think there's a lot more there, so we'll hopefully get to more of it in future episodes. But now it feels like a great time to turn to someone on the heresy spectrum and continuum with our heretic of the week. It's the heretic of the week. So hello, everyone. This is Alexander John Shia, and I am delighted to be here. In fact, I've been chuckling ever since I got this invite because most of my friends and then a whole bunch of other people consider me a heretic. Hi, Alexander John. John. Alexander John, welcome so much. We're thrilled that you're here. Just to get us started, tell us, why would a lot of people that you know, friends included, call you a heretic? Oh, gosh, how many ways can I, can I count this? Um, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm first-generation Lebanese. I was given the name Alexander John because I was to be the next in the line of priests in my family that goes back uh, almost 800 years. Um, and so I grew up in a very traditional Catholic home in Birmingham, Alabama, in the Bible Belt, and was a very sort of pietistic, traditional boy as I grew up. And then I went to Notre Dame. 
And uh, in theology at Notre Dame, I began my coming out experience. I'm probably one of the few people who came out in freshman theology reading the novel of Narcissus and Goldman. And um, that whole exploration of being gay uh, in the in the 1970s, in the early 1970s, um, totally shattered my traditional Lebanese Catholic upbringing. So it, that that whole sexual uh, awakening for me is the first place because I have a great devotion and love of Catholic tradition, and yet as a very open gay man who has worked for the Roman Catholic Church and worked across at last count 26 Christian denominations. Um, It's very unusual to have uh, an openly gay person be so committed to Christianity and to understand it in a way which is quite different from most people. When this first happened for you, you said back in the 70s, do you think there is a, um, a difference between now and being gay in Christianity, and and then back then in the 70s? That's really hard to know. I mean, I will say that when I came out, the first time I actually said those words to myself, I was sitting in my theology professor's office, uh, an Episcopal priest, and um, his response to me was, gosh, keep exploring. This is wonderful. And in that moment, going back all those years ago to think of how rare probably it was to have a priest say that to you uh, and just took away, I don't know, maybe a decade or two of guilt and shame. So that uh, I just had that incredibly wonderful experience of being affirmed by a representative of Christendom to explore my sexuality in in a very healthy way. I would like to believe that that's more people's experience today. I hope that's more people's experience today, but I wonder. Yeah, yeah. There's so many other ways that could have gone, you know, in someone else's office. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So that's amazing that uh, that you were able to have that affirmative experience, especially then. Yes, I mean we're talking 1972. Uh, this is just a few years after Stonewall, and uh, I don't even know like where the strength of that exploration came from in me, because it was an anathema to even have that thought as long as I was in Birmingham, Alabama growing up. Yeah, that's kind of like a double whammy because you're growing up in Birmingham, Alabama in the Bible Belt. And and I happen to, I have a lot of Lebanese friends. I grew up in the Detroit area. And, and so I know Gee. how it's, it's very... Um, you know, it, it's it's a very it's not acceptable. Exactly. That, I was trying to think of a politically correct way of, of saying that, but yeah. So so how was that experience? And and I mean, first you're 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 coming out in a Catholic community, and you're and you're coming out in um you know in um, Notre Dame, which is a uh, you know very um you know pretty conservative um college, and and then on top of that, the the Lebanese family experience. How how did all of that kind of dovetail? Um, I'm I'm just curious. Well, I mean, it, it's painful. Uh, I, I will say that I found myself in this incredible bubble at Notre Dame because the theology professors were very accepting and very affirming. Uh, although that was not the experience back in the dorm. I mean, I I, I you know was insane 
as a sophomore to announce to all of my dorm mates that I was gay. Oh my God. The, uh, uh, but the, the affirmation that I got from the theology department was incredible. Uh, equally, it wasn't until much later, it wasn't really until about 10 years later that I, that I told my parents and, and the rest of my family. And that really fractured the easy relationship I had with many family members and would say even to this day has never been put back together. Oh, yeah, that's that's a lot right there. And if did you move back to Birmingham after college? Well, no, I, I went to seminary because that was I was on the track. I mean, my father had said right. five minutes after I was born that my name would be Alexander John. That was the name going back 11 generations of family priests. So I went to seminary. I had a natural bent to theology and psychology. But I got to seminary in 1974, and after this incredible uh, foundation in theology at Notre Dame, I got to seminary, and it was like, I, it was like, here's the question, here's the answer, dot the I. I was bored out of my mind uh, and numbed out of my mind. It actually got suicidal because um, the, the seminary was so deadening for me. And then on top of that, um, there was all this sexual activity that was going on in seminary. I mean, I saw more sexual activity going on in seminary than I did back in Notre Dame. And uh, I, wait, what seminary were you at? I, I was I was at a Roman Catholic seminary. <laughs> okay, okay, nice dodge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and it wasn't that the, the sexual activity wasn't what was bothering me. What was bothering me was the hypocrisy of um, the, the fag jokes and the, the really uh, overt homophobia that was spoken out loud at the dinner table. And then an hour later, you're being invited to somebody's room and you're hearing doors open and doors close and beds creaking, et cetera. And, and I just, after my experience at Notre Dame, which had been so affirming of sexuality and also this incredible forward-looking theology, which we can explore a little bit. It's like seminary was just so killing my soul. So um, after a while, I left. And, and that was the first challenge with my family, because as my father said to me until the day he died, you're the first son in 800 years who said no to his father. And that in, the, in a traditional Lebanese family, that was very, very hard. Yep. Yeah, I can imagine. And so is are you the firstborn son? No, I'm actually the thirdborn son. Okay. And um, my father had said before I was born that he wasn't going to give a son of his the name Alexander John. But when I was born, he looked at me and, you know, in some incredible way, he got it right. I and mean, he, he got what my, what my work was going to be in this life. It just never fit his category. Right. Yeah. It just wasn't as an ordained Catholic priest. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the other piece that happened for me at Notre Dame was we had this professor who came once a year to teach an advanced course and you had to be upper class to get into the class. Um, And that professor was Joseph Campbell. And but this is before anybody knew who the American mythologist Joseph Campbell was. He was just this kind of passionate little guy who who just burst into the room. 
But what he taught every springtime was a seminar on Hebrew and Christian scripture as great myth. And he taught us how what we think of as sacred story is also uh, 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 what's a companion uh, to the world's great sacred stories. And he, and he taught me especially, or at least I really heard especially how every great story across the world, across era, across time, across culture that has anything to do with transformation must be told in his language, must be told in four parts. And he called these the four parts, the hero or the heroine's journey. And sitting in these classes with him in 1973 and 1974, I immediately had the question, is there something about this four-part journey, which is why we as Christians ended up with four Gospels? And I started this search that really lasted 30 years, trying to figure out if, in fact, there was a way that the four Christian Gospels were the great myth, along with all the other great myths of the world, about the journey of transformation. And then finally, for me, in the year 2000, I got the last piece of the puzzle. And I suddenly saw the four Gospels in an entirely different way than I had ever seen before. Um, It was like these words that I almost had memorized. Suddenly, I was reading them through an entirely different lens. Yeah. So, So you're standing in the tradition. You're rooted in it. As a gay man, um, for a lot of people, that's going to be difficult because of one thing and one thing only, the B-I-B-L-E. How do you, how do you and it's not a problem for, for, for many people also who, who can read it a certain way and, and see different things in there. How do you uh, consolidate that rooted in the tradition and, and still affirm LGBTQ like so many of us do? Well, for me, I mean, first of all, the the Eastern Rite Catholic Lebanese tradition that I come from is a tradition more about mysticism. So even though mm. I grew up in Birmingham and all of my friends were Baptists, all of them, right, um, and I understand the evangelical perspective, but that wasn't mine. I grew up in a mystical perspective. I grew up about with where everything was about poetry and metaphor. And mm. the whole the whole Lebanese world is to understand that the deepest truth can never be said in word in, in sort of a literal words. It's got to be said in poetry. It's got to be said in metaphor. And and to strengthen that, the the language of my church when I was growing up was Aramaic. We weren't Latin speaking in church on Sundays. We were, our worship service was in Aramaic. And I learned the Aramaic worldview. Um, you know, Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke. And essentially, it's a dead language today. It's only used in certain places in worship services. But Aramaic is a language of poetry. Um, it's a language which is circular and metaphoric. and and learning that perspective, I know that so much of the English translation of scriptures is, is abysmal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Preach uh, it. 
I mean, just like in Aramaic, you can't use a word like right or wrong. There's no such word in Aramaic. Jesus could never have said something about right or wrong. Um, in Aramaic, the language is about the earth and about the growing cycle. So if you want to talk about a, a particular action or behavior or attitude, you've got to talk about it either as a bud on a tree or a piece of green fruit or a piece of ripe, sweet fruit ready to be eaten or a piece of fermenting fruit or a piece of rotting fruit. You've, you've got to use an agricultural metaphor which sets whatever you're talking about in context. It can't be just simply, quote unquote, right or wrong. Jesus could never have said that. You know, regarding sexuality, I, I'm just thinking back to your experiences as so affirmative while you were in college, which is this amazing experience. And then some of the hypocrisy you um, discerned that you saw that you witnessed experience later um, before you left the, the priesthood track. And this way of seeing yourself embedded in creation. Um, does that lend itself to how you interpret scripture, to, to how you see yourself in scripture, to how you see yourself um, ex, um, expressed in the story? Yes. In fact, so I'm going to move ahead to this moment when I realized that one of the reasons that we have these four gospel texts and not any of the other 46 that were written is because it's only these four, in my belief, it's only these four which tell the full story of the journey of transformation. As Campbell would lay it out, the, the text of Matthew is the first path of the hero's journey, which is I hear the summons to grow or to change or to transform. And the text of Mark, Campbell talked about the second part of the journey is facing tremendous obstacles and trials. That's the text of Mark. And the third part of the journey is hearing the new vision. And that's the text of John. And the fourth part is bringing the new vision back to community and beginning to take what was an extraordinary beatific vision, if you will, and make it part of your ordinary everyday life for yourself and others. And Campbell called that the return to community. And that's the text that we call Luke Acts. And so what I finally realized after 30 years of, of, of work and prayer, uh, becoming a clinical psychologist, being trained in, in trauma and trauma recovery, is I realized that each of these four texts were written to a particular community at a moment on their journey, which was trauma recovery or trauma healing. And that the ancient church knew that they wanted to give us the path of transformation. I mean, this is the fallacy that the last 500 years of scripture scholars have forgotten. They're, they've gone down a, a blind path to nowhere, thinking that these stories were to only the accurate history of Jesus. They're not. They're the history of Jesus, but they're not written for history's sake. Each one of the four Gospels was written to be one part of the path of transformation. And when the early church went to search out what were going to be the four texts, they rightly chose the four texts, not because they're patriarchal, but or, or 
they are, um, you know, sometimes, yeah, or I mean, sometimes people think we ended up with these texts because, you know, a couple of men were sitting on the, on the veranda, sitting at juleps and trading the, the gospels like baseball cards. No. Well, Constantine is the easy out for everything, right? It's just Constantine's fault. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But, but, um, by the second century, Christianity had already said that the gospel is one, but it must have four parts. Now, why would anyone have said it must have four parts? They didn't say we're going to go get all the eyewitnesses of Jesus, because that would have been more than four parts. It's this piece. The first thing that was ever written about the choice of the gospels is the number of the gospels must be four. And, and to my way of understanding of, of recent time, nobody's answered that question until the work that I'm working on now has put forth an answer. There may be better answers out there, but we've got to go back to those early centuries and say they weren't looking for Jesus. They were looking for the story of Jesus inside of us that would be the story of our path of transformation. That's why we ended up with these texts. Now, when these texts are at the groundswell, at the root, the journey of transformation, then we've got something that sets us as a good companion to all the world's traditions, which are teaching us about the journey of transformation. And then if you want to use a more theological word, you can say the journey of holiness. But the reality is, what organizes the truth of these texts is the journey of transformation. It's like as a clinical psychologist and as a theologian and as a person who knows the spiritual classics, these texts are true down to where they put the periods. When you compare them to what we know about the journey of transformation. I, I love that you're bring, able to bring your whole self to this text. Um, uh, it, it, including but not limited to sexuality. And it's funny, I just saw, we're recording this during, right before the holiday season is in earnest. And I just saw a colleague of mine, um, a fellow biblical scholar post, she was like, oh, I forget how many biblical scholars are actually practitioners until Christmas comes around and people start posting about going to church service. Um, But I know for me, my response to that was, yeah, I I see her point. Um, I I don't think she was, um, happened to be religious. But I was like, you know, for me, it was when I stopped trying to separate my academic self and my spiritual self and my um, my transformative self, that things really came together. So I, I love that you're able to do that, um, you know, in all these really creative ways. Thank you. Um, and I, I mean, back to, to where you sort of had leading me a few minutes ago is each one of the Gospels is built on a landscape and it's built on a season of nature. And this was another part of what uh, arrived for me 20 years ago. The Gospel of Matthew is written on the landscape of climbing a mountain in the season of autumn. And the Gospel of Mark is the season of winter. And the Gospel of John is the season of spring. And the Gospel of Luke, Acts, is the season of summer that bends right back around again to autumn. So... There, there is a, there's an earth cosmic basis to the text, and it, and it, and organizes and roots the text, not just in a theological concept, but in, but in, but in a, in a, uh, an incarnational cosmic way. 
Well, I, I am I'm loving all of this, and I know our listeners are going to be loving all of this. Typically, we ask our guests where um, where people can find their work, and I'm just going to say right now that people are not going to have to go far because we've got some exciting news that you are going to be a part of the choir family. And I would love if you could talk a little bit about that and, and what that means. Yeah. So um, what initially this creation called the Shia Sophia House, we initially were conceiving of this as, a, as our own publishing enterprise. But uh, we soon discovered that we were so much in consort uh, with choir that in our discussion, we've decided to become an imprint of the choir house and that our mission is to um, uh, support and release works uh, about transformation that open up ancient tradition in fresh ways. And, and so that's sort of our mission under the large mission of choir. And I'm really excited that my book, uh, which is now in its sixth edition and after 20 years of writing, is uh, on the docks as we speak and about to be shipped. And the title is Radical Transformation. And I love that term radical because radical means root. And um, the four gospel journey is not about switching cognitive ideas in your brain alone, but it's about forming you as an authentic, unique individual who also knows how to be a member of a community of people who are seeking to be authentic. And so the, the, the t- full title is Radical Transformation, The Four Gospel Journey of Heart Five. And we're releasing it as a hardcover. Um, and literally, uh, we've got orders right now, and uh, we hope to be sending them out to our purchasers within about a week to two weeks. Um, it's sitting on the dock in Northern California. And unfortunately, there's been an outbreak of COVID, and um, the, the, the pallets are sitting there not, not yet able to, to go to the shipper. So. Uh, and then soon we have a whole series of other works coming out uh, early in 2021 uh, under the Shia Sophia House label through choir. And uh, I've re- I, I pre I got to preview one uh, to make some comments on it to the author. So I know everyone's in for a treat. We're looking forward to a lot of um, collaboration and really really great stuff that's going to be coming. You know, coming to all the listeners and and even more. So I'm really excited about yeah. the the new. A new relationship. Yeah. yeah. So we've got Anita Brown and Carl Forehand and Ben DeLong or the three that are in the works and, and more coming after them. Oh, so I read Carl's. I wasn't going to say, but since you said it, that's the one I read. Everyone's Absolutely. in the so, <laughs> Yes. Awesome. Well, fantastic. Is there, um, uh, is there a Shia Sophia House website? Is it going to be under choir? And do you have a personal website that you can send um, our listeners to? Well, uh, my website, which we have just totally redone, is quadratus q u a d r a t o s quadratus q u a d r a t o s dot com. Uh, the Shia Sophia House website is still uh, under design, and it will also appear under choir. 
And there is a link on my website right now to go to the Shia Sophia House Facebook page. But uh, we've uh, we've been retooling everything under Shia Sophia, and I've been working to get this major tome opus of mine out. Well, we can all yeah. identify with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, th- this idea was. Um, I mean, Harper bought this idea in 2009 and produced the hardback book that was released in 2010, which I was very unhappy with. And eventually, I uh, was able to buy the copyright for my book back out from Harper, and am now going to release this edition, which I think it will be the book of record for what many are calling the most seminal work on the gospel since Martin Luther. Well, mic mic drop. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, everybody else is trying to do the story of Jesus, but if you want to move past deconstruction. You've got to set the gospel in an entirely new base, and that base will not be the history of Jesus. It'll be how Jesus's life teaches us about the journey of transformation. That's reconstruction. Anybody yeah, that's else? lifting the text out from questions of literalism or of yeah, exactly. or guilt dogma, kind of, yeah, or even from the dogmatics, yeah, into our personal transformative story, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know what the history of this idea that I'm working on will be, but what I do know is it's the first new idea on the Gospels in a traditional way in 500 years. You can't bring any. You can bring all the scholarship of the last 500 years to bear on this idea, but but none of the scholarship of the last 500 years can get you to this idea. Oh, I can't wait to I can't wait to read the new edition. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, it's my pleasure. It's truly my pleasure. I, I don't know when this will air, so I will wish everybody a very blessed and happy 2021 and looking forward to a COVID, a COVID-free era. Oh, amen. You know what? This airs, um, I'm pretty sure this will be on the air January 4th. So we're still in the Christmas season at the time when everyone right. hears this. So Merry Christmas to everyone who celebrates. Happy Festivus if you don't. For the rest Merry of us. Christmas. Yes. Right. Yes. So, and you'll also see on my website that I've released something uh, called the 13 Days of Christmas that's uh, a provisional text. And next year it will be a, a book to require. Nice. All right. Well, we all look forward to that and would encourage everyone listening to head on over and uh, like like the page, the Shy Sophia House on Facebook, and check out the website. And thanks again for coming. Thank you for, for asking. Thank you. Truly. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Oh, wow. Alexander John Shia. Wow. What a fascinating interview. Great guy. And so great to have him uh, as part of the choir family. Yeah. Well, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Thank you, uh, Mob Jokes aside. Thank you, Alexander. Let's get into the topic today. We uh, Like Keith, you mentioned at the opening, this is the Clobber Passage series. And we are going to start out with a doozy by talking about the LGBTQ plus clobber passages that we're all probably too familiar with that Christian churches like to emphasize, even though there's only like a handful of them, but we focus on these ones. Which ones do you want to start out with? Do you want to go to the Hebrew Bible or do you want to go to Paul? Where do you, where do you guys want to go? 
No. Nowhere? <laughs> no. And yes. All Avo- of the av- avoid them. Avoid them all in general. <laughs> well, um, as, as we're getting started, I also want to um, say that in this series, we're going to have an uh, LGBTQI affirmative session as well. So I know in working with these passages, working through these passages with people in the past, it's so easy to get triggered and like, oh my gosh, it all can kind of kind of come raining down. So we encourage everyone to take care of themselves and also know that we're going to have a, you know, um, gender identity, sexual orientation, positive affirming episode two. So just look forward to that. Well, let let me say this from the beginning. I am LGBTQ affirming and appreciative. I mean, from the beginning to the end. And, And listen, for all of our listeners out there, LGBTQ listeners, listen, if somebody fucks with you, I will kick their ass. That's all I have to say about that. There you go. I got your back. All right. End of episode. I love it. You got a golden ticket right there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks a lot. Hope you enjoyed the show. Pass the offering plate. (laughs) I'm so glad that's over. Well, I'd say say we begin with Genesis because that one is, that's where we get the very ugly word, sodomite from. And it's one that I hear referenced a lot. And it's the earliest, you know, as you open the beginning pages, there it is. It's, you know, right there in chapter 19. So why do you you say it's an ugly word? Because um, obviously on the one level, it just means somebody from the city of Sodom. But of course, it's become uh, a pejorative term, right? That's true. I don't know anyone from Sodom. I don't either, actually. No. I, well, I think it got destroyed, so they're not around anymore. Well, I heard that. I think I, I think I saw a movie about that. <laughs> I think there's a salt mine nearby. I believe so. <laughs> anyway, sorry, well, sorry, I digress. No, I know. I, I, I yeah. I, uh, it, it's interesting to me that this is even used to talk about anything LGBTQ because if you actually read the passage, it has nothing to do with that. But. Um, I mean, Katie, as the, the as the resident scholar, maybe you can speak more to that. But to, to my reading of it, it has nothing to do with LGBT folks. Yeah, I agree. So let's maybe it'd be helpful if we just kind of very briefly summarize the story and then talk about the arguments that are used to sort of condemn uh, as a as an anti LGBTQI passage, and then maybe explain our understandings of it. Yeah, go yeah. for it. Okay, certainly. Sweet. All right. So, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, this occurs in Genesis chapter 19. Uh, I find its positioning super interesting. Ha, huh, that was not a pun, but it sure did sound like one. Passage occurs after the, uh, again, another promise of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. And it happens after that bargaining that Abraham does with God, which is a passage I just love where God says he's going to destroy a city. And Abraham says, well, if there's this many righteous people, will you please not destroy it? And when you get down to it, I think that comes down to the um, conclusion that I've made that even Lot is not righteous. Like no one in the city is righteous. Lot doesn't come across sounding like a very righteous guy when he's willing to send his daughters out uh, to the, to like, uh, appease these this mob. Getting ahead, getting ahead, Keith. We're not quite there right. yet. Sorry, but yeah, um, no, all right. Lot, so was, in, Lot, Lot was a pimp. <laughs> yeah, the first. We're gonna we're gonna talk. Can Lot be rescued? Probably not. Probably not in this no. story. But uh, Lot escapes the condemnation when we when this is used as a clobber passage. Interestingly, yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, brief summary of the story, right? Like the Sodom and Gomorrah are going, or Sodom is going to be destroyed. 
um, to angels, to messengers, to people. It's not very clear who they are. Um, come to Lot's house and they receive uh, hospitality from Lot. And the men of the town come to Lot's house and they demand that these angels, these messengers, these men, whoever they are, um, be brought out to them. Lot refuses and there's threats that occur. Lot, as Keith said, why don't you pick it up, Keith? What does Lot do that's maybe not so righteous? Well, I've already spoiled it. Yeah, so um, because there's this angry mob uh, demanding that they send out the two messengers to them so that they can sort of have their way with them. Uh, he he suggests instead, why don't I give you my daughters? Uh, which is so horrific to me. And yeah, again, this is the example of the, the one righteous man in the city. Um, very, very sad. Right. Yeah, and for all the, for all the Bible thumpers out there, I always ask, where was the love in that? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Not, a, it's not so much a story about love for hmm. sure. Um, before the daughters can be handed over, the men, it says in verse 10, the men actually reach inside with their hands and they bring a lot uh, out uh, into the house with them and then they shut the door. Um, so the men, the angels that like, kind of grab Lot and save him, so the, the daughters are never actually thrown out. Thank and God. then the city, as Lot and his family do escape uh, with the help of these messengers, angels, then uh, this is the famous story, I believe, where Lot's wife is turned into the pillar of salt. Mm-hmm. because she looks back, but they in fact do all escape. And later on, Lot ends up in a cave with said daughters and things do not go well. Yes. But all of that, of course, is conveniently left out of the, uh, those using this, this story as a clobber passage. So it's, it's, it's always used as an example of, we'll see, uh, you know, homosexuality is such an abomination that God had to destroy an entire, you know, city uh, with fire and brimstone from heaven uh, to, because of this uh, homosexual uh, activity, and yet, as as Matt said, that isn't at, this not the sin of Sodom. That's not what even God says the sin of Sodom is. Uh, and in Ezekiel, we get God Himself saying what the sin of Sodom was, and He goes through a very specific list of things that were the sin of Sodom, and it, He doesn't mention um, homosexuality. Yeah. So one one important thing I think when we're looking at any any Bible passage, um, if we can kind of begin to tease out the clobber trauma that we've all received, and um, those who are listening who are part of the LGBTQI community, I know that you have received this a lot, and how toxic and how damaging it can be. If we can tease out what does it actually say from what have people interpreted it to mean, and um, I think what Keith just said is really important that when we look at the reception history, how this verse has been quoted and used throughout um, the rest of scripture, the rest of scripture will quote this, um, and then uh, maybe other parts of Christian history, it's only very recently that anyone has thought this had anything to do with gay sex, right? So Keith quoted uh, Ezekiel, but this, I, I did a little quick search. I counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, at least 15 times in scripture where the story is quoted and it never says that the problem is male on male sex. Yep. It's always something else. Is this just an instance where we have a presupposition in our minds as religious folks, as what God is like, as what the Bible is like, and then we 
instead of exegeting the text, we eisegete the text and we read things into it that fits our pattern of thinking. Is because that to yeah. me is what's going on when we when we force this uh, passage into our anti-affirming posture. Yeah, and I think so. And so many, so many Christians are have so much shame uh, and guilt around sex in general, mm-hmm. and are not. We're not. We're not a. Se- we're not a sex positive culture. I don't think we're a sex positive world for the most part. And so then we read like kind of like secret. Um, I don't know. It's like secret shame. Um, and if someone may, I don't. I don't know how to. I don't know how to say this right. But like then we we otherize it. Sure. Right. right. So like straight people otherize. If you start with the premise that sex is dirty, then that means you're you're headed down a rabbit hole to find out what is the dirtiest possible sex you can get to. And that and that and that's where you know that's where this leads to. For straight homophobic people. Exactly. I mean that this this uh, this absolutely must be the dirtiest possible thing that you can do. But uh, again, the, the the whole point is is that what what happened in Sodom had nothing to do with love. It had nothing to do with empathy. It had nothing to do with compassion. And that was the, that was the problem with Sodom, not, not gay sex. That wasn't the issue. The issue was, you know, these people were just, they, they were just dirt bags. I mean, you know, honestly, oh boy, I almost said something, but I'm not going to say that. Um, basically, you know, it, it, it was, it was a, it was a justification for segregation. That's what, and, 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 and so when you're, when you're looking for something to justify how to separate, how to divide, how to categorize people, this is a great place to start. Mm. And that's, and that's the whole, that's the whole gist of it. And I want to say something to Matt's point about exegesis versus eisegesis. Listen, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, all of it is eisegesis, 100%. There is no such thing as a true exegesis, because that would mean that somebody is foundationally right, and that is a flawed premise. So, anyway, I digress. You know, well, another like, oh, sorry, Keith, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you go ahead, Keith. Well, one of the, I think one of the fascinating things to me about this story is it's a very anti-city story, and we see in the Abraham story in general. Um, the a the Genesis authors of the Abraham story love the wilderness. They love the journey. They love that Abraham is kind of traipsing all over the place, looking for a home, never really settling. Every time they go into a city, something really terrible happens. And this is another example. And so it's kind of separating like lots, not the chosen one. And the fact that this comes so soon after, again, the promise of Isaac, which also has all sorts of problems to support Ishmael. But within the kind of context of the author's framework, this is also saying cities are bad. Lot is not the promised one. He settled in a city and all these horrible people do horrible things um, in the city. And so this author also really loves the countryside. So rural listeners, if you're listening, we would love to hear from you Mm. about the value of the country. You know, they they obviously don't like blue voters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Katie, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I honestly have never thought of it that way. But you're abso- you're brilliant. absolutely right, um, which is why I I mean I grew up in the city and now I live in a small town and and I, maybe I'll live in a smaller town after this because I never know what's going to happen in them damn cities. 
Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's just a little interesting commentary in the story. And, uh, you know, whenever Abraham and Sarah go into the city and they try to pass off Sarah yeah. as a sister, not a white, right? Bad yeah. things happen. <laughs> bad, bad things happen in the city for the author of Genesis. Yeah. Authors of Genesis. Yeah, I, that, I think you're right. I think that that's... there are some biases within the text that we don't catch because we're not connected to the author. And it just what was the what was going through the minds of people reading it at the time to kind of go, you have to put yourself in sort of an ancient way of thinking and an ancient framework to no, start noticing some of those biases. So thank you for doing, for uh, putting that out. I think that's awesome. Oh yeah. Well, and then at the, you know, the very end, like lot after the destruction of the city, he may leave the city, but the city never really leaves him. Right. Even when he goes into the country, into a cave with his, with his daughters, um, incest happens then. Yeah. Right. And who can blame them? Who can blame them for taking advantage of their father at this point in yeah. time? I cast well, no blame on them. All, all that is good stuff. Um, it seems like there could be much more said, but we do want to get to some other passages. Do we want to shift our focus to Paul um, and Romans? Are we done with the Old Testament passages? I mean, my, my thing about, I'm just going to say this quickly about Old Testament passages. Like to me, the Old Covenant passages that, that, seem to forbid or, um, you know, put shame on people that, uh, um, that are in the, the, the clobber passages we would look to in the old Testament, just put it that way. Um, to me, those, I, I can't take them seriously because I guess for me, uh, it's in the context again, uh, of laws written to, uh, the nation of Israel. I am not a member of the nation of Israel. Um, uh, and, uh, it's also usually it's in with a whole lot of other laws that people conveniently ignore you know, because like I like shrimp and I like cheeseburgers and um, I like bacon. I really love bacon. And um, and so, you know, and I also mix my threads together, you know, cotton and wool and things like that. So um, it's like it, to me, it feels like if you're going to go back and Paul says this, right, if you're going to follow the law, then you need to follow all of it. And if you break one of it, you've broken yep. all of it. So it just seems like it's one of these convenient things to say, well, right here in the Old Testament, here's a verse that seems to condemn. Uh, same-sex relationships. And okay, well, if you want to live by those rules, then I, I would just encourage you to live by all of those rules. And of course, the people that are that are using those verses to condemn other people uh, who are not like them, as, as Katie said, this is othering, um, they're not about to follow these other rules and laws. I mean, to them, those, those don't apply to them, but it's convenient that they can find one that does apply to other people. They're, they're happy to enforce it. Yeah, I think the other thing that may be helpful when we're, especially when we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, um, we're not going to have time, I think, today to talk too much about what, what Keith was just referencing, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But in this story, you know, what is the sin? What is the sin of Sodom? Um, and as it's referenced, and I think it's really helpful to view this story through a hospitality lens. Yeah. And in the yeah. Middle East in this time, and still today, hospitality was so sacred. And when a guest entered your home, you are responsible for them. So when... Lot says, I will give you my daughters uh, instead of these visitors. He's protecting, he's abiding by the very deep and sacred codes of hospitality that he has to protect his yep. guests above all costs. Um, I don't like it that he offers his daughters, yep. but within the context of the story, I, that's a helpful lens to read it through. But he so could then have what, himself. He could have said, take me instead. And then that, at least then He's only speaking for himself and not volunteering other people like his daughters, who, who by the way, that's, that's the whole, um, women as property concept yes, too, exactly. you know, that, that basically here take, you know, take this, this is not worth anything. So 
it, and so that that you you have a lot of that. I mean, there's misogyny all in this. Yeah, street, it's a patriarchal so. culture and a patriarchal lens over the story. You know, no no doubt about it. Um, I think what's but what's the sin? The sin is not gay sex. The sin is for sexual violation of any kind. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. The sin, you know, the sin is um, demanding uh, demanding a sexual act that's not yours to take. Right. Right. And what if the angels were just simply meteorologists in the story? That they knew something was coming that was going to be disastrous. Right. And they just said, Hey, you know, listen, um, your cousin Abraham thought enough of you that maybe we should come in here and say something to you. Because something's coming. Shit's about to go down. Time to get out. Yeah, yeah like I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't take any of that divine wrath pouring down from the sky as something literal to my theology though i do think that's how they best explain the world around them right exactly yeah but it's also to me this is also making definitively sure that lot is not the heir it's Isaac. sure right like this story is a way to say like no, not him. If anyone has any doubt, no, really, it's not him. Y'all look at him. No. <laughs> and then he, you know, he leaves the city. Look, his wife turned into salt. Then he goes into the cave and his daughters commit incest with him after, you know, like the story is saying at, at all costs, like it can't be him. We destroyed a whole city. Like what other message do you need? It's Isaac. Y'all. It's Isaac. Yes. <laughs> so I don't think the story is about, the story is not about like sex at all. It's, it's really no. about not lot. Y'all, really no matter hate. what. It really isn't. And that's what goes back to my point. Like we have presuppositions about what sex is supposed to look like, what righteousness is supposed to look like. And we read all this shit into the passages that, that just validate ourselves and what we already believe. And I, and I'm using a broad brush of course, but that's how a lot of us approach texts like this. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of confirmation bias inherent in the text. So you, it, it, it's not, I don't think that it's, it's a huge leap for us to um, seek confirmation bias in the text when the text itself is a source of confirmation bias. Yeah. We, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, so yeah. Should, should we, should we now move on to Paul? Should we go to Romans? Let bring it on. Would you like to, would you, would you like to head to Rome? My friends, let's go to Rome and while in Rome, let's do as the Romans do. Oh, they was, they was freaky though. <laughs> they so. were pretty freaky. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say, to me, here's the thing, my take on Romans, and I know, I know, Matt, you've got a, uh, well, I'm sure all you guys have a different take on, uh, or various takes on it. Um, but to me, honestly, when, when I just sit down, and I've done this with people, like just start at the beginning of Romans and read through the, the entire first chapter of Romans. And to me, if you follow the flow of what Paul is saying in Romans, he's not condemning homosexuality. That's not the point he's trying to make. Um, and, and, and so to me, it's, I mean, just for example, like when he, when he starts talking about, when he finally gets to the part where he's describing, uh, same sex, uh, sexual acts, but it's, it's something that comes from idol worship. And so, you know, I know several people that are gay or trans and none of them are that way because they were worshiping Pan or, you know, Athena or, or any, or Zeus or anything like that, like that. Paul's entire point is that these people that are worshiping idols, that 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 behavior is what leads them to those things. But it's not a condemnation of those acts. It's a condemnation of the idol worship. Uh, And I know 
And actually, when it comes to the end of it, he actually flips the, the script around. And it turns out he's actually not even talking about that either. Uh, but, I, but I think it's just one of these things where people, especially with Romans, love to just grab a couple of verses that they think, uh, you know, agrees with their theology and they ignore everything that came before it or around it. Well, there was there was a thing with what they call temple prostitution, too, that yes. um, that sex was like an act of worship in a lot of pagan uh, practices. Yes. And so when what what was happening and, and this was true in both Roman and Corinth that they were bringing these practices into this nascent Christianity. And, and, and so Paul is looking at this as a, whoa, whoa, pump your brakes, guys. This is not what we're supposed to be doing here. You know, don't, don't bring all of this other old bullshit into this. Let's try to keep it pure and, and, and how, you know, how, how Jesus laid it out for us. Yeah. Katie, I'd be here to, I'd be curious to, uh, to hear your take on, on Romans, especially Romans one. Uh, Romans one is like probably the most problematic um, passage to have conversations about because it's really hard to listen. So I think one of the number one questions I get is how do I explain this to someone? And the thing is you can't explain it in a pithy quick way. And so forgive me, this might take a little while, but I'll try to, I'll try to be a swift for me. uh, Well, you know, let's just, can I just read the passage real quick to give people context? Yeah. Sure. Um, it's really short. So we're just we're talking mostly about verses 26 through 27, just those two verses, right? Yeah. Uh, for this reason, I'm reading the NRSV. Uh, for this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way, also the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with other men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So it's easy to see on first read why this makes um, an easy quote in a clobber passage, right? And and we've all seen it. We've all experienced it. People pull this out of their back pockets uh, and uh, lay it down all the time in hurtful ways. I think what may be really helpful, um, at least from my understanding of this passage, is to understand that sex in the ancient world was a zero-sum interaction. And there was no such thing, I'm going to say that one more time, there was no such thing as sex between consensual peers at the same level of like ancient honor. There was always someone who had more honor and always someone who had less honor. So if it's a male-female sexual relationship, uh, the male is the dominant penetrator, the woman is the penetratee. This was important for kind of ancient Roman uh, Roman and Greek ideas of sex, and actually for, I think it applies to the Sodom and Gomorrah story as well. If you have two men in homoerotic sexual acts, and we should not use the word homosexual when we're talking about the ancient world, we should use the word homoerotic. There was someone most likely who was in a station high above the other person. They would be the penetrator. The other man would be the penetratee. Uh, and so there's always an unequal um, social relationship. Yeah. Uh, this is the same in ancient Greek. You know, there's a lot of talk about how older men would take on young boys as lovers. There, there is, uh, yeah, that, that was true. And again, it's an unequal relationship. Where the ancient Roman world gets wigged out is two women. They don't know what to do with two women um, because 
no one's a penetrator in their minds. And so we see that somewhat reflected in this passage in Romans. Um, and then two men of equal social status would never have been seen in a consensual, loving you know, relationship. Um, they, they just could not conceive of that. So I think we, Paul, buys into this mindset. And I think that's what we see reflected in Romans. And this kind of talk about it being unnatural is because no one's being penetrated with two women. He doesn't know what to do with that. Men committing shameless acts with men um, is sort of this idea, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem that Paul probably would not have liked uh, same-sex sex. He barely liked heterosexual sex. Right. <laughs> right? Um, so, but I think we're seeing a, a very ancient Greek-Roman mindset here, and we're not seeing the condemnation of consensual loving or, or unloving relationships today among adult peers. Because that didn't exist. All right, my lecture over. I'll be quiet. No, no, I think all of that is is spot on, and and I've 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 essentially said the same thing to people. Uh, we we need to understand as best we can that their context is not our context, and that these concepts of even heterosexual or homosexual, which is now a pejorative, but but bear with me, um, that. These were not concepts back then in the way we understand them. Secondly, I think you're correct, Katie, in, in, in your assessment of Paul. And I'll take it even a step further, piggybacking off the word work of Doug Campbell. I don't think the whole like overarching point of Romans 118 through 32, of which 27 and, uh, 26 and 27, which you read, Katie, are in there. I don't think the point is what those sins are, what that list is all about, insofar as the point is getting to the punchline of chapter 2, verse 1, where it's like, it doesn't matter where you are, you're doing the same stuff you're condemning. So, so there, there is, there is a, um, a rhetorical argument going on here within Paul that he is having this uh, this debate, if you will, with uh, so-called false teachers in Rome, in Galatia, and he is kind of laying out this sarcastic argument between himself and his uh, who he's calling the false teachers. And you know, it's it's he would have sent like maybe Phoebe uh, to read this out in the congregation. And almost do this sort of uh, dramatization of what this argument looks like to get people to think, oh, I'm a hypocrite. Oh, I can't condemn anyone for this list because if I look at my own heart and my own actions, I'm doing the same thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that I totally agree. See, I think, again, I feel like Romans chapter one is actually a setup. Um, he's getting them wound up. You know, you almost hear them. Uh, you know, amening all the way through chapter one. That's right. Oh, those those filthy heathen sinners. Oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, they're horrible. And then you come to chapter two, and then there's the big mic drop moment where he turns the tables and he says, "You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for whatever point you judge one the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things." And uh, yeah, so that's that whole thing. Like, so, you know, verse three. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, meaning you break the law as well, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing 
that God's God's kindness is what leads you to repentance. So again, he wants to make a diff, uh, a bigger point. Um, that and so again, this is my my real problem with Romans is that Romans to me is a very intricate, interconnected series of arguments where Paul says some things that you you know at the beginning you think he he thinks what he's those things like oh he must he must believe that but then he'll reach a point where he'll go actually and he'll flip it around and unfortunately that's with the problem is people love to pick and choose with Romans and just read those little parts that they like and stop reading can i bring this down to <clears throat> street level please yeah get street derek something 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 practical because this is something that i've learned in my life that the people who seem to be obsessed with sex are the people that ain't getting any <laughs> And 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 I think I think that this is just a simple case of Paul being a guy that couldn't get laid. So so basically he has to act out all of his frustrations on on his audience. That's his that's his uh his lever, if you will, how he exerts his power. That's his thorn in the flesh. And and so don't go there. Yeah, that you know that, that could be, you know, maybe maybe if um, you know, I don't know, maybe if uh, if Paul stroked it out a little bit more, <laughs> a little bit more, I don't know, maybe I don't know. Hey, so I here's here's something I've no, I've I've done when I've talked about this Romans chapter one passage. Uh, and I don't know if you guys agree with this or not, but uh, but when I've been in conversation with Christians about when they want to use Romans one as a clobber passage, I'll just say, look, you know, again, go to the beginning of Romans chapter one. What he starts to describe is these people that are worshiping. Um, you know, idols. Uh, he says, you know, uh, they claim to be wise. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And that, that's what he begins by talking about. Right. And then, then he begins from there to describe, well, so then to worship these idols, here's what they do. So uh, what if I'm just thinking, this is just a what if, what if in Romans chapter one, what he went on to describe was heterosexual sex acts. And then the men have sex with these women, multiple women or whatever. And then, you know, the woman does fellatio on the man or whatever. Like, what if he just went into detail describing a heterosexual series of acts that were done to worship these idols? Which, by the way, I would argue he could have done, assuming that was the way they were worshiping them, because I think that is what he's really talking about in Romans chapter one. But so yep. let's just stay with me here with the what if. So what if that's what was happening in Romans chapter one? These people worshiped idols. The way they did it was having heterosexual sex acts in the temple. Would you assume, would you just automatically assume, therefore, God hates heterosexual sex? Well, of course you wouldn't. Why? Because you're heterosexual. Like, in other words, we have an implicit bias against homosexuality when we read Romans chapter 1. And so we just assume that what he's trying to do is to implicitly, this point is to condemn the sexual act that is being done to worship the idol. But I would argue the, the act that's being done to worship the idol is irrelevant. It could be a heterosexual act. It could be a homosexual act. That's not what he's really upset about. What he's upset about it is that they're, they're, these pagans are worshiping idols regardless of how they're doing it. And that in itself is something that he finds objectionable. Yeah, but he, Paul, so I agree that um, these the the se the sexuality that Paul describes here and elsewhere is closely associated with idolatry, um, beyond a shadow of a doubt. People aren't having sex in order to worship idols. People are having these sexual acts as a result of worshiping idols. In Paul's mind, I don't think yeah. he's right, 
but in Paul's mind. Right. And Paul has a problem with any sexuality outside of marriage where, you know, I think he's wrong, but that's, that's his deal. (laughs) That's his deal. Like marriage is the solution to the problem of desire. Right. Desire is the problem, right? When desire is expressed in all these ways outside of his sort of narrow definition of self-control. That's a problem. Again, the dude that's not getting any. Well, he, and, he said he wasn't. Sure, right? yeah. would be celibate like him. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think the other important thing about Romans that may be helpful um, is that this is the one letter we have that Paul writes to a community that he didn't start. Yeah, he's never visited them. Right. And so it's also, I mean, in some ways, it's a um, it's a it's a beautifully terrible letter uh, and its structure. <laughs> And that he's really trying to reconcile um, Jewish Christians who still identify as Jewish, like as a sect of Judaism, and Gentile Christians who are beginning to emerge into their own identity. And he's trying to bring these two together uh, in in this unique way. Um, And so what can everyone get behind? Get behind, you know, homoerotic homoerotic condemnation. They probably couldn't even get behind that. Um, But the... Uh, do we hear uh, in it? Does this does Romans? Sorry, my thoughts are running them up. Is the word homosexuality used in translations of Romans that you're all familiar with, or at least in discussions about it? It's not in the text. The word homosexuality it's not in the text. text. Yeah, nope. um, so I, th- I think it's just worthwhile noting that that is a term that originated as a medical term in the late 19th century. Yeah, and there's no. Greek or Hebrew word that's equivalent. And it's a, any translation that uses the word homosexual is an error. Right. And we'll get into that when we get in maybe to, uh, or, do we have or, time? Yeah. Or as I would say, it's fucking bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So- do, do we have time? Because those past, the, the, those um, words that we've mistranslated are from 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, there's, there's a couple terms in Greek and, some or both or one get translated to homosexual, but it's it's in error, as Katie said. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the, the famous thing is that uh, when you tell people and I love actually dropping this bomb on Christians uh, when we're having this conversation to say, well, you know, uh, the word homosexual never appeared in any English Bible until 1946. And that's the truth. I mean, it, it didn't. And so uh, and so how did the English translations of the Bible before 1946? translate these words that are now translated homosexuality. Well, there's two different words. Neither one of them map to anything what we would call homosexuality. Um, the words are malakoi is one of them. It just simply is the word for soft. It really means someone who's effeminate um, and someone who is malakoi, in, in, at least in the Jewish world, would have been a man, for example, who would shave his beard because that would be unnatural for a man to have smooth face like a woman. Uh, a man should have a beard. So um, that would be that would be Malakoy. And I think we could just see that that I mean, to me, that's just something where uh, if Paul were to say, uh, and, and I think that is what he's saying, uh, hey, you know, uh, if, if a man has a shaves his face and has a smooth face, uh, he will not inherit the kingdom. I'm say, Paul, well, that's something cultural in your way of thinking in the first century. Maybe that is what you thought. But we would today reject that idea, I think. Pretty sure we would. Yeah, it's sometimes translated as um, it's sometimes translated as homosexual. Sometimes it's translated as male prostitute, which is bizarre to no. me. Uh, I think the best translation of it is either soft or feminine. Right. 
Right. Yeah, and again, what, but if you are yeah. if you are a man who is effeminate, please don't take that passage as saying, oh, this is in the Bible that God won't let a man who's effeminate go into the kingdom. Like, again, this is Paul's perspective. This is not God's proclamation that if a man likes music and poetry and plays, you know, whatever, uh, that or, or he just has an effeminate nature or way of behaving, that God rejects you. That's bullshit. That That is not what... And bear, we should not believe that. And bear in mind that this is a post-canonization retranslation. Mm. Yeah. So it, it, it's not. Well, the, yeah, somebody's. Well, mm. I mean, this is original. No, yeah. No, no, no. no. What, what I'm yeah. saying, what I'm saying is that the, the whole translation of it is homosexual. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah that that, that is yeah. is post-canonization. Yeah, so that's why I'm saying that. Yeah. Any reason. And yeah. then the, no, the other no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not tinkering with the original text. Right. No. And then the. the I mean, the, I would like it if the, we could, Derek. But yeah. Oh yeah. Totally agree. Feel free. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, you know, but- to publish a new translation of the Bible. <laughs> but you know, part of this, you know, being Malakos, this is again going back to those Roman ideals. Uh, honor is a zero sum game, and sort of Roman male elite ideals are very. Um, popular. They're they're kind of set in stone. Right. And so Paul is drawing on those ideals about like sort of male virtues. I think in other places, actually, in the next chapter that I wrote a whole book about, (laughs) um, I actually sort of suggest that Paul adapts some of these Roman male ideal ideal values like self-control and says, actually, they don't only belong to men like women can have these too. So I think he plays around with these ideas. But Malakos is kind of the opposite of that Roman ideal. Now, was that Roman ideal correct? Is that, do we need to apply that to our world today? No, absolutely not. That's, yeah, like Keith said, it's just absolutely ridiculous. I think the other, we and we should talk about the other word too, yeah. um, Um, But the other thing that just might be helpful for listeners is that this is part of what what's known as a vice list. And we see this several times in the New Testament when you have a list of sort of attributes um, so let me just read 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Um, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is the NRSV. I'm going to adapt it. Um, Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters. So again, we have this connection with idolatry. Adulterers, malakos, malakoi, uh, whatever, however you choose to translate that. The next word, arsenikoitai. Uh, and then thieves, greedy drunkards, revilers, robbers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. I don't think at all we say today that someone who steals once in their life won't inherit the kingdom of God. Right. Right. This is a, this is a standard list. It's used across Roman and Greek writers in the ancient world. And they put together like, not you, not you, not you, not you, not you. And then they'll usually say what the virtues are that we should be aspiring towards after that. Right. Yeah. I I think that the the text would have been better served if, if they simply said, I think. (laughs) I think, or I feel, because when when you say you 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 put it out there as um, uh, I forget what the actual term is, but you put it out there as if it's something empirical, and and everybody just needs to follow this, and that's where we get off the rails because at the end of the day, like I said, it's all eisegesis. It's all subject to interpretation. Derek, you're suggesting that like Paul and the Corinthians should have used I am statements to talk about their feelings. Mm. I, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, sometimes though, as an author, you just put out the uh, idea without saying "I think" because it's already assumed that this is what you think. 
Yeah, but the, the the problem with that is is that when you when you speak authoritatively, that's the word I'm looking for, as an authoritative statement, then like I said, it goes off the rails because when you don't proceed it with I think or I feel or this is my opinion or my thought, when you do that, that's when you you begin to impose your morality on I, others. I, and 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 if and if you think about it, that's really what Paul does in a lot of his writing. I, I get that, and I and I and I hear what you're saying, but so, like I think some of the ownership on on the interpretation is on people because if you look at this vice list, a lot of it has to do with coercion, inhospitable, uh, whatever that word is, inhospitable, um, not treating others with empathy. It's not going to be all of a sudden two gay loving dudes and then go back to like people who thieve, people who commit adultery. It's like this is just. The way we interpret it these days to be anti-gay or anti-LGBTQ is just so out of context. It, it only takes ten seconds to realize that. Like, it's not going to be like, oh, those who are those you know who are doing all this. Here's, this, this, here's this. how you simplify it. Here's how you simplify it. Real simple, right? If what I do, it affects me in some way, or or it's something that I do, and it and it harms no one else, then this then it's fine. I, you know, honestly. When when people do what whatever it is that they do, like if you if you like to drink to the point where you get drunk and you do it in your home, you don't leave, you don't cuss out your, your spouse, you don't, you know, take it out on your kids or kick the dog or anything crazy like that, but you just get drunk and you pass out. Okay. Who did you really harm? No one, right? So so the thing the thing is that when two people love each other, or three people, or four people, or however you want to slice dice or julienne that. If it's not impacting the lives of anyone else, then really, who gives a shit? And that's where that's where a, a, a lot of this the 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 Bible sets itself up as this authority that says that if you don't do it this way, then it's wrong. And 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 honestly, when you go back and look at the original authorship, in a lot of cases, that's not what they were saying. It was simply this is what I think, not this is the way it is. Yeah. But that's the way it's that's the way it's uh, portrayed to society, and 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 for that reason, you're finding a lot of people now that are that are taking a look another look at the Bible and saying, well, you know, okay, and and the and the spectrum runs anywhere from well, this is allegory to well, this is really bullshit, and 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 that's where we are. Yeah, I, I wanted to read just real quickly um, something that's really been I've really loved is. Um, David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament, which if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's really great. And so he has a note under chapter six of First Corinthians, specifically about Arsenicotai. And I'm not going to read the entire thing. It is very lengthy, but it's, it's very good. Um, but I'm just going to get to this, read this one little part of it here where he says, uh, Arsenicotai would not mean homosexual in the modern sense of a person of a specific erotic disposition for the simple reason that the ancient world possessed no comparable concept of a specifically homoerotic sexual identity. Uh, it would refer to a particular sexual behavior, but we cannot say exactly which one. The Clementine Vulgate interprets the word Arsenicotai as referring to users of male concubines. Luther's German Bible interprets it as pedophilia, and a great many versions of the New Testament interpret it as meaning sodomites. And then he ends it by saying, My guess at the proper connotation of the word is based simply upon the reality that in the first century, the most common and readily available form of male homoerotic sexual activity was a master or patrons' exploit exploitation of young male slaves. So 
it's much closer to something we would call pedophilia, not homosexuality. That word, the word is very interesting. And the first time it's ever used is in the New Testament. We're going to yeah. talk about that more in our uh, kind of after hours Patreon yeah, let's do discussion. That. Yeah, yeah, let, let's cool. do that because I know we can unpack that a lot more. But before we get uh, before we end this episode and transition to our our Patreon exclusive talk on Arsenal Koitai, I, I just want to tell all of our listeners about our website. It is heretichappyhour.com. And there we yes, we do have a bookstore. So if you love our Heretics of the Week and who doesn't, most of them have books. Most of the books that they have are on our bookstore and most are roughly 15% off and they help support the show. So I would encourage everyone to go to heretichappyhour.com. There's a link up at the top that says bookstore. Browse through there, check out, and you can thank us later. Matt, is there a book in there that would help someone with the clobber passages? There's got to be. Yeah, I think we do have um, uh, Eric Rattan's book. Uh, What is the name of it? I have it. We'll post it. We can post those in the show notes, our kind of recommended reading. Yeah. So yeah, that'd be be awesome. Uh, We also have a couple of Facebook groups. So we'd love to have everyone, everyone, everyone in Heresy After Hours. We got currently 2,123 heretics, just like you, asking all sorts of questions and receiving really like, cool, amazing answers, support from a loving and sometimes snarky like we are community. And we do have a Patreon Facebook group as well that's exclusive for our Patreon community. And so if you're a member of Patreon, we'd love to see you in there. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of Patreon, listen, um, we're just about to, uh, after this episode ends, we're going to spend another 10, 15, 20 minutes um, and record bonus content. You can only unlock if you are a supporter of the Heritage Happy Hour podcast on Patreon. And you can do that for as little as $2 a month. Uh, But at the $2 level, $10 level, $25 and $100 level, depending on where you want to to support the podcast, you will unlock some amazing, cool, awesome stuff that you, trust me, you're going to love it. So head on over to patreon.com slash heretic happy hour, support the podcast. We would really appreciate it. By the way, those of you who do support us, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. We love putting together bonus content for you guys. And we thank you so much for your support. That's right, folks. And if you listen to and like this podcast, we highly encourage you to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes, after which we will pronounce a blessing over you and absolve you of all your sins. That's right. So uh, I thought of that book. It's called, uh, Eric Raton's book is The Triumph of Love. Ooh, thanks. Oh, thanks. <laughs>